The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise in banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. So let me tell you about a moment I had in the Beehive Theatre last week. I was sitting there after the announcement of the Level 4 lockdowns, within four hours of hearing about one case of Delta, we were in lockdown, and the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, Grant Robertson, came out and announced the immediate availability of the wage subsidies and the resurgence payments. And I was sitting there slightly shocked, um, but then it occurred to me that actually... I might need this myself. I'm an independent, contractory, gig economy type person. I do some work for the spinoff here, uh, this great podcast I'm very lucky to do uh, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. Thank you very much. And some various other writing. But a big chunk of my income is actually speaking engagements at company conferences and industry conferences. And just before I'd gone into that press conference, I'd seen three emails and gotten one voice message from people saying, that's it, these events that are planned for the next couple of months, they're off. Now, that's a quite a big hit to my revenue, and certainly around the 40% level, which the government says, if your revenue is hit by 40% and you don't have other resources, then you should be able to claim the wage subsidy and or the um, resurgence payment, which is designed to pay for other costs other than wages. And it turns out an awful lot of individual contractors, small businesses, sole traders have applied for the wage subsidy and in huge numbers. So within two days of the wage subsidy being open, more than half a billion dollars cash was paid out. Now I'm not that quick on for Mark, so I haven't applied for it yet, but it, it certainly made me think, boy, there's some people who are really quick to claim that cash. And you can see why. Because last year, when the wage subsidy was dreamt up in a matter of days and MSD was able to pump that money into people's bank accounts, it really made a huge difference. And it's worth remembering that now is not like then. Back in March of 2020, it felt like the world was ending. And if you're in a business, big or small, the idea of someone else giving you a bunch of cash to put into your account so that you could keep paying those wages really mattered. And... A lot of companies did it just as a matter of, we need cash right now. Let's not think about the ethics or the morals or what's going to happen. Let's just make sure we can pay the bills next month. And luckily, that was a real boost to confidence and got the economy back up and running again, delivered in a much better way than virtually any other country in the world and widely seen now as first in class for helping your business sector cope with a shock like COVID-19. So it worked. In fact, it worked really well, so well, that within a few months, most of those businesses had recovered that lost revenue. They certainly hadn't laid off staff, or hardly any, and in fact, we're now looking for extra staff. Many of those companies were making good profits again, and it suddenly occurred 
towards the end of last year to everyone, that maybe that $14 billion that was paid out wasn't all needed. And the question was, so if you don't need it, surely you should pay it back. And we started looking at the accounts of the publicly listed companies as they reported their results. And it turned out quite a few of very well-established, apparently wealthy, certainly thriving companies by the end of 2020 had taken the wage subsidy. And of course, a lot of that information was made publicly available by MSD. So you could see who'd taken the money. And it turned out a whole bunch of people who you think wouldn't necessarily need the money took it. So, some very big law firms, Meredith Connell, some very big companies, Fletcher Building. In New Zealand, well, you know, you've got to give them uh, a bit of a break, I suppose, in that um, their business completely collapsed and is collapsing again. But there are a lot of retailers, a lot of people in construction, in various areas where by the end of 2020, they were booming and reporting big profits. And a couple of particular companies who not only reported big profits, paid big dividends, and were called out on it, the likes of Harvey Norman, Fulton Hogan, and others, particularly international companies, who uh, not only took the money, didn't need it, didn't repay it, paid themselves dividends, and basically said, yeah, so what are you going to do about it? And that's the guts of the problem here. $14 billion was paid to people who, in the end, didn't need it. They got away with it. There has been no repercussions. MST has not uh, lodged any legal action to claw that money back. Certainly, MST has lodged legal actions to claw money back in the last year from beneficiaries. $1,000 here, $1,000 there debts not repaid, a few missed family support payments. You can be sure that money was dragged back. But what about the $14 billion that went to the business community? And how do they feel now about that wage subsidy? And it occurred to me as I was sitting there in the Beehive Theatre, I'd be sort of embarrassed to take that money. I don't really, really need it. I could say that I need it and by the letter of the law be able to take it. And it would be nice. And maybe, you know, the world is going to be much tougher in a year's time and I might actually need it in a year. But by then it will probably be too late. So maybe I should grab it because other people are grabbing it. If I don't grab it, I'll miss out. Maybe nice guys finish last. So uh, I haven't made up my mind yet, but I think it's something that we all need to understand that the social license that was there for those wage subsidies in March 2020 is not there now. Yet the government is operating and restarting the whole thing just like nothing has changed. But things have changed. Over the last year, it's been really, really tough for people who are young, who are renters, who are Māori and Pacifica. All they got was $25 a week extra if they were a beneficiary. A doubling of their winter energy payment and right towards the end of this last year and a half or so, and a slight increase in the benefit because of wage indexation. That's not nearly enough just to 
catch up with rent increases of about 5 to 10% for many people across New Zealand. Those renters, of course, have missed out on the $400 billion worth of wealth created because of the government's actions in the last year and a half. Firstly, to pay that $14 billion and to only get a billion or so back in repayments, that $13 billion effectively went straight into business bank accounts and you can see it. When you look at the deposit records at the Reserve Bank, you can see it's about 15 to $20 billion, depending on which starting and ending point you look at, which has been pumped into the bank accounts of businesses. Now, most of that money came from the taxpayer. Where is the outrage about that? Because remember, it didn't necessarily have to go that way. If that $14 billion had been paid out equally in cash amounts to 5 million New Zealanders, that would have been $2,800 in cash for each New Zealander. That would have been very fair. It would have led to a lot of spending. That money wouldn't have ended up in bank accounts. For a lot of really poor people, often who are in debt, high interest rate debt, that money would have been used to repay debt. It would have been a real help to those people who need it. And as we've heard from the Child Poverty Action Group over the last few days, those people who are renters, young, Māori, Pacifica, out of work in gig economy work, have lost income and they've seen their costs rise and they haven't been getting these big cash payments that the government's been handing out or see the value of their assets increase, which of course has made people feel more secure. This has been a K-shaped recovery. The rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poorer because of actions by a Labour government supported by the Green Party. Extraordinary, really. A left-leaning government takes action to give $14 billion in cash to businesses, large and small, doesn't ask them for the money back, doesn't take legal action to reclaim it. Yet, as we heard this week from Carmel Cipollone, the Minister for Social Development, the government hadn't really got around to thinking about either increasing the benefits again this time around or doubling the winter energy payment. She was asked, is the government looking at it? And she said it was going to be a very complicated, technical and bureaucratic exercise to do. Well, half a billion dollars in two days in cash to businesses, yet doubling the winter energy payment for beneficiaries, too hard, too slow. And what about the Reserve Bank, which in the last week has decided not to increase interest rates? And we've heard already from real estate agents that demand from buyers, remember these are the ones who've seen their equity rise by 30% in the last year, are now looking to um, leverage up some of that equity in their existing properties by buying yet more properties. Plenty of interest, again, chances of another 20 to 30% rise in house prices and in the value of assets. Are we going to allow, do we accept yet another repeat of this K-shaped recovery? That's what we're going to be talking about this week on When the Facts Change. What about the ethics of taking that money and not paying it back? Where's the accountability? Are businesses really going to do this again? And what about those companies who were able to successfully claim the wage subsidy last time around 
will they have a social license to operate? We talked to Professor Wong from Auckland University who studied the NZX50 companies that took the wage subsidy last time and is frankly quite angry about the way that many companies took that money and kept it. We then talked to Peter Vile, who is a Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand country head, and he looks at the ethics of taking that money, how business leaders are considering the wage subsidy system again and thinking about whether it's not only the right thing to do for shareholders, but the right thing to do for all of their stakeholders. I'm Bernard Hickey. That's this week on When the Facts Change on the Spinoff Podcast Network in partnership with KiwiBank. And now on When the Facts Change, we talk to Professor Jilnort Wong from Auckland University, Emeritus Professor. Professor, what did you find with your research last year into um, how those listed companies accessed the wage subsidy? Well, our, our sample was on NZX50 companies, but at the time that we did the research, we had to cut off on the 31st of August because there was a submission deadline for the article. So we only, I think, reviewed... I think there were only 10 out of those NZX50 companies or 10 out of the companies that had their numbers available did take a um, the wage subsidy. But of course, uh, subsequent to the data collection process, there were then other companies that had reported their results that indicated that they took a wage subsidy. Um, the companies like Briscoe, the Warehouse and um, Glassens that um, took the wage subsidy, made a profit, and paid dividends to the shareholders. But, uh, of course, the warehouse and Briscoe then repaid the wage subsidy back to the New Zealand government. What do you think about those companies that took the wage subsidy at the time when we thought unemployment might go to 30% and got back into a good position where they were able to make a profit and pay a dividend, paid a dividend, but didn't repay the wage subsidy? What do you think their obligations might have been um, in any sort of ethical or or legal sense or in any sort of social licence sense? Well, there's two perspectives here. One, legally, if they argue that, well, we did everything according to the criteria that were set out by the government, we're entitled to it. The government offered it. We did everything possible. And our shareholders would expect us to do that because one chain of thought that Milton Friedman wrote about in the 1970s, I think, was that the role of organisation is to maximise its profits. So we're not actually doing the right thing to our shareholders if we don't take the wage subsidy. Uh, if the shareholders were that concerned about a social conscience, then when they receive the dividend, perhaps they could give that money to charity. But it's not the role of executives and organisations should be to be doing that. But I think the world's moved on from that, that perspective that... Uh, Today, you know, organisations are not looking just at shareholders, but they're looking at a range of stakeholders, the community, employers, the environment. Uh, you know, we have this ESG uh, world that we now live in, and fund managers uh, look at ESG policies in, uh, of organisations before they decide whether they're going to put their money in there. So I think the world's changed a little bit, and, and, and I guess the, the, the th- issue here is... Uh, ethically or morally, whether that is the right thing to do. I mean, the standout company for me was Main Freight, whereby the CEO said, you know, we were entitled to this, but when we looked at ourselves, we don't think it's the right thing to do. So we, we, we gave it back. 
But, you know, I can understand the debate which says that, you know, we're CEO, we're paid to look after our shareholders, and we, we should take it. Uh, what do you think about that um, that argument, which you're right, Milton Friedman came up with, and yeah. for those who haven't read all the Milton Friedman papers, they may have seen the, the Wall Street movie where Gordon Gekko essentially perfectly explained the Friedman line in that famous scene where he stood up in front of the shareholders mm. to say that greed, for the want of a better word, is good. It cleans out the inefficient and the lazy and gives you the best possible results. Yeah. And there's something quite um, perfect and uh, beautiful about that idea, at least. But uh, why do you think that's going out of fashion a bit? Well, look at climate change, right? Activities that organisations undertake have externalities. You think about pollution that's given rise to climate change. Well, you know, companies don't get charged for these externalities, but it, it affects the community. It affects you, it affects me, it affects environment, it affects our grandchildren. So I think we're now looking at a different model where we, were look, where we are looking at stakeholders just as opposed to just shareholders. And of course, there's another well-known economist by the name of Kenneth Arrow who took a different view to uh, Friedman. He is saying that uh, over the long term, if we do good for society in our business organizations with social responsibility, the organization itself would perform better in the long run. So let's not just look at the short run, focusing on short-term profitability, but let's look at the long term. And when organizations benefit the community at large, then those companies are far more successful over the long term. Um, you've spent a good chunk of your career analysing the books and what they actually say about a company or an organisation. What about some of these other, I suppose, softer things, which sometimes we do try to measure? Goodwill, for example, <laughs> used to be a thing. Uh, what about some of these other things? For example, you know, permission to operate as a large company as part of a legal agreement that the government might have put in place. They might have passed a law to help you do what you need to do, or they might be providing an infrastructure that you run on. Main Freight, for example, wouldn't be able to do its work if it wasn't allowed to go on the roads, for example, which yeah. are owned by the public. So can you, can you give us a sense of how accountants are starting to think about this issue of measuring some of those social and long-term you know, assets and liabilities that a company might face, even if they're not something they could see in their accounts next month. Yeah, I mean, there's this new thing called integrated reporting that companies are reporting uh, far more extensively than straight financial statements. Uh, that model, which is gaining ground, and even the accounting professional bodies like uh, Chartered Accountants Australia New Zealand and CPA Australia are looking at reporting under an integrated reporting method. So it extends more than just beyond financial matters, but along social, uh, environmental uh, matters as well. So, of course, those measures are not as hard or auditable as our financial statement numbers, but we've got to start somewhere, I think. And do you think auditors are starting to get this, because they're the, the final uh, arbiters, the ones who, you know, 
the wicket keepers to st- stop the ball going down down to the boundary. What what uh, what are auditors thinking and doing on this? Well, I think great opportunities for auditors to expand their business, isn't it? It's a growth option for auditing firms um, because the financial statement audit is quite restricted. Generally, the fees are quite tight. From my experience in auditing, always tough negotiations between the auditor and the company that doesn't want to pay any more. And I think they're already doing a lot of that sort of work um, and also providing advice to, to companies on integrated reporting. Now, your research was into the NZX50, where there are a you know, set of declared rules about how you report and uh, usually someone has a look at it from, from maybe the analyst community or uh, certainly shareholders and they can do it in reasonable public. There's a common set of facts we all agree on um, in the reports that come out through the NZX's uh, platforms, but increasingly there are a large number of companies, and some of them very large companies, that are privately um, owned by, it might be a private equity fund or a, or a family fund or just a plain old individual who've gone out of their way to get off the public markets, in part to avoid this sort of scrutiny. Do you think there is a, a risk or a chance that... Uh, the irony of the increased push for transparency and these sorts of you know public debates might see even less and less information and less on the public markets. Yeah, well, that's one of the costs of going public, isn't it? Um, that information becomes available and you are subjected to far more stringent requirements or regulations in terms of disclosure requirements. Um, there, there, but nevertheless, if you just take the wage subsidy, for example, um, MSD reports who, which companies have taken the wage subsidy and the amounts, and they are publicly available. Um, you may have heard of the Gamma Foundation and Grant Nelson, who's taken to task some big private companies for the amount of wage subsidies that they have taken. Because some companies um, can be quite uh, inventive in the way that they funnel cash back to shareholders or owners or um individuals who may restructure a cash flow as a loan rather than a piece of equity. So that, that's one of the risks too, isn't it? That what appears to be a loss may not be quite so clear once you look at um, who's borrowing from whom and, and what sort of uh, transfer payments that are going on, particularly when you've got companies that are owned internationally. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, if you're talking about international companies, then of course the transfer pricing becomes an issue as well. And the way they suck profits out of, say, New Zealand by charging management fees. Uh, and the tax department is uh, onto it. I'm not a transfer pricing expert, but clearly they want to make sure that uh, if a New Zealand company is buying from a, a US parent, for example, that is actually paying fair value and it's not, uh, the price is not loaded so that it becomes a very high cost of sales in New Zealand and hence a zero profit. And yet the profits is actually taken abroad to a tax haven country where there's very little taxes paid. I think there are very strict transfer pricing rules to try and prevent that happening. Some of it goes on. These sort of things must go on. Yeah. And uh, what do you think of the way that the government has uh, restarted the wage subsidy scheme in terms of uh, protections for shareholders or directions to companies to ensure that maybe some of the abuses or the problems we saw last time aren't repeated? Well, two two points here. I think first, I I think the government's doing the right thing. Uh, But what's nice to see was that of the 127,000 applicants for the wage subsidy, 
Only one, I understand, was a company with more than 500 employees, which goes to show that the majority of these companies who are applying are really the mum and dad operators who are badly hit by this lockdown. You know, clearly those in the hospitality industry, those in the tourism industry, you know, the local coffee bar, these are the guys that are, and, 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 I, and I'm all for it. I think, you know, and they, they, they're entitled to it and, and good for them. I think the other thing that uh, uh, Minister Robertson, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, didn't, he, he emphasised the decline in revenue criterion, but there are other criteria before you can qualify for the wage subsidy, which includes taking actions to mitigate your losses or mitigate their lack of funding, including talking to your bankers and drawing on your cash reserves. He does not make those points. Although, if you look at the set of criteria for the wage subsidy, these are there. The decline in revenue is only one of those criteria. It is not the sole criterion. Because that's that's one of the complaints that the the Austrian school of um, economists who look at these sorts of uh, government bailouts or payments during periods of crisis say that if you keep doing this, you create a moral hazard where people understand, and uh, banks are the most vulnerable to this, of course, understand that y- you can have a very uh, stretched balance sheet, um, the opposite of a lazy balance sheet, hardly any yeah. cash, uh, mm. lots of debt, and know that you can get away with it because uh, when you're in trouble, you go to the government and say, gee, I didn't have the resources to cope with this. <laughs> you know? In New Zealand, the Bank of New Zealand are two cases in point, right, if you go back into the economic history of this country. And of course, when you're just measuring decline in revenue, it's all subject to all sorts of accounting gymnastics. You know, the timing of revenue recognition, when do you build some customers? Like during the first lockdown of the wage subsidy, uh, I'm aware, although I don't have any evidence, I just have heard from people who work in accounting firms that a number of accounting firms applied and received the wage subsidy. Now, you can't tell me that an accounting practice who have a standard set of clients year in and year out would have a decline in revenues. I suspected what they would have done was simply not bill those clients in in that month and just defer the billing to some some later months. You know, this is just a timing of revenue recognition and it's not a decline, it's not a permanent sustainable decline in revenues. And I think that's just gaming the system and I think that's inappropriate. The other point that I want to make is that given the history, given the recent history of what's happened with the first wage subsidy, it's amazing how the government has not revised the wage subsidy to include, say, clawback provisions or to treat the wage subsidy that I've always argued as a forgivable loan. So we'll give you a loan and if you continue to make a loss over the next 12 months or whatever, then you can keep it. But if you've recovered then you've got to pay us back. So there needs to be some sort of clawback type provisions to make sure that this is just not money for jam, that um, it's we've got it because we've really suffered an economic loss. Because there's an element of uh, fairness to think about here. Um, you could argue during the first lockdown there was an element of panic and the need to just do something real fast. And secondly, it's clear now a year after the first lockdowns that the responses from the government were pretty blinking good for asset owners, homeowners, people who own shares. The uh, uh, quantitative easing programs all around the world and, and here 
along with the government measures to pay cash, pretty much no questions asked to businesses, but not to um, beneficiaries or young people who are renters, plain old workers, who often are subject to sanctions uh, from MSD if they do the wrong yep. thing, um, that there is an element of, gee, uh, that, that those last ones weren't fair on me, and now they're doing exactly the same thing. Well, if you look at, I, I don't have the stats with me, but I've read somewhere that the MSD ha, has prosecuted beneficiary frauds, you know, f- fraud cases where beneficiaries have taken money that they shouldn't have taken. But I'm not aware of a single case that the MSD has prosecuted or brought into prosecution for the wage subsidy. Why do you, why do you I, think that is? Because um, the numbers are much, much bigger than, you know, I haven't, I haven't paid back the uh, one week's uh, family support yeah. that I was expecting to pay. So yeah. Huge amount. And in today's paper, this poor woman who lost her husband and got a letter to say that the MSD's overpaid her husband's pension by $1,700. And 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 then I think in the week that he died, she got this letter wanting her to pay back. I mean, seventeen hundred dollars, and yet four hundred and eighty million dollars went out of our government bank account overnight on this wage subsidy. And uh, to my knowledge, uh, there there's been no prosecutions. Why do you think businesses are held to a different set of standards than beneficiaries? So say. I, I, I don't, I can't understand that. I just have no explanation for that. And, um, yeah, it's, maybe they just think that this is a tough time uh, with COVID. We're there to help businesses. But, boy, I mean, you help them, but if they're there to cheat you, then I think we need to prosecute them. I think as simple as that. It's fraud, isn't it? It's taking money that you're not entitled to. You know, if you're entitled to it, Fine, but if you're not entitled to it and you've taken it, then I think you need to be, um, it needs to be audited. Like, I mean, some of these companies that, that took the, um, the wage subsidy to say that the revenues dropped, well, if you look at the GST returns, they don't actually, uh, I've been doing some work on that. I mean, the, the revenues dropped, I think the lockdown came in in March the 25th, 2020. Revenues dropped in April and May 2020, but they certainly did not drop by 30 or 40%. If you look at the total, on a macro basis, looking at based on the total GST returns filed for those months, and when June came along, those revenues went up. So, but the point is that while they dropped in uh, April and May, as you would expect, they did not drop by 30%. In fact, I have the numbers here because I've been doing some work on it. In April, it dropped by 11.6%, and in May, it dropped by 10%. Certainly nowhere close to the 30%. And interestingly, by the time June came, it went up by 24.5%. Now, I wonder whether that's been some sort of strategic delaying of revenue recognition. And in the end, we had $14 billion paid out and less than a billion paid back. But, but one could argue that my numbers using GST, in fact, these are not my numbers, these are the numbers from Grant Nelson of the Gamma Foundation. One could argue, oh, well, but you know, revenues might have declined in total because the GST revenues are only domestic revenues. But if you look at export revenues, the same 
picture emerges. They dropped in April and May by about 11 and 10% and by June, oh sorry, they dropped by about 3 and 6% and they were up again by June. So if you look at the total revenues, domestic and export, sure there were drops in April and May, but nowhere near 30%. And by the time June came along, it went up by nearly 25%. You look at this picture and it tells you that there may be some gaming that's going on here. Professor Jill Nort Wong from Auckland University, thank you so much for your time you've been with When the Facts Change. Pleasure. Thank you, Bernard. After the break, we talk to Peter Vile, who is the head of Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand, here in New Zealand, about whether these wage subsidies have a social licence to operate. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25, 26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tāmaki Makaurau, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Welcome into When the Facts Change to Peter Vile, who's the country head for Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand. Peter, great to see you in your uh, home office. I'm in my home office too. Kia ora, Bernard, and thank you for the invitation. Um, just to explain what my organisation is about, we have 30,000 members across New Zealand and about 130,000 across the globe. Um, so we are a professional body for chartered accountants. We're also a frontline regulator uh, for auditors and insolvency practitioners, for example. We also have an extensive education programme and we are a public good advocate. So we had the first version of the wage subsidies and there was some controversy later on when we worked out quite a few people who had some cash and eventually were quite profitable and some even paid dividends, uh, took it and didn't necessarily pay it back. What's your perception of how business decision makers, directors are seeing the wage subsidy this time around? Look, my take on it, Bernard, is that things have changed, um, which I think lines up with the, the name of your podcast, but uh, facts have changed. And this year there are uh, some different uh, aspects at play. So I think there's there's four things I'd highlight, really. Um, I think this time, although there's a lot of uncertainty about how long the lockdown will last, how long we'll be in level four, when different parts of the country move, I think overall businesses are less uncertain this time. 
they're not entering into the great unknown as they were last year in March, April last year when we cast our minds back. They've got some previous lockdown experiences to draw on, um, so they've got a much better idea of how the lockdown will affect their business. And then the second reason I think why, why things have changed is that there is um, the level of need has changed for some because I think a lot of businesses last year learned quickly how to pivot, how to change their business models. So there's all of the benefit of those learnings that are coming through, which are likely to affect the need for support this time. The third reason I think would be um, this whole issue about social license to operate, media and public spotlight on the applicants. There's a lot more awareness about that. Um, people know that there's public scrutiny and media scrutiny. They know that there are public registers of re recipients who everyone can check on who got what. Um, and the public discourse built last year, and no doubt it will continue this year. You'd be naive to think it wouldn't. And, um, you know, last year the pressure or the, the spotlight was on big businesses. I suspect this this year the spotlight will get go wider and will be on potentially all businesses. And then, the you know, the fourth big I think it's a really important reason why it's different this year is that the rules themselves have changed, as I mentioned before. So when we had the first wage subsidy last year, it was a high trust model. It, the money was rushed out quickly. The application form was very straightforward. I can't recall whether there was an actual declaration that an employer had to make, but if there was, it was extremely minimal. It was a couple of sentences at best. At each iteration of the wage subsidy, we've had about four, that declaration that the, the employer is signing up for um, is committing to has got bigger and more comprehensive. And now it's had a look this morning, it's four pages and it's got a page of footnotes as well. So there's a lot more that a business uh, owner or employer is declaring. There's now a specific detailed clause in that declaration about the obligation to repay the subsidy, you need to have a 40% reduction in revenue or, or for the wage subsidy or a or a prediction of a 40% uh, reduction in revenue. And now the declaration says if you don't meet that prediction, if you don't have that level of downturn, then you must repay. Do you think the way that it was eventually um, run last year created an environment of trust amongst the wider public? Because... People look back and see the likes of Harvey Norman that made big profits, paid big dividends, Fulton Hogan, uh, a bunch of others who are very big, often international, um, very profitable, um, had cash in their bank accounts, didn't need to use it because they got government money and haven't been prosecuted. And I think that I wonder whether the element of social license is there this time around amongst the broader public. What's your perception about the perception of, of people on in boardrooms. Bernard, I think that that social licence to operate expectation was building last year. I mean, you know, when the first wage subsidy was launched, the, you know, and we went into lockdown for the first time, there was there was general panic. You know, small, medium, large businesses applied for the for the wage subsidy. They were predicting large drops in revenue. Those didn't eventuate in some cases, but they did in many. You know, if you had a discussion amongst directors, you would still have some directors who who see their 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 main role as protecting the interests of their shareholders, and they would perhaps say that legally they they met the requirements. Um, and therefore were eligible for the payment. 
regardless of the fact they've got a better outturn in the long term, that they were able to pay dividends and so on. But I think my view is, coming at it from a profession's point of view, is that there is an ethical lens as well as a legal lens to apply uh, to this kind of government support. So not only do I have the right to do this, but is this the right thing to do? To unpick that a bit, I think it's helpful for businesses to think about what's the policy intent here? What is this support for? And if we look at the different support that's available, they are for different things. So the wage subsidy is to keep keep employees on board, to keep employees employed. One of the other big support payments is the resurgent support payment. Now that's administered by Inland Revenue, and that's designed to help businesses with effectively with their fixed costs, with their rental and their rates and so on. You know, now if you're a a, an empl- a business. And your landlord, and some landlords did do this, some landlords gave tenants rent holidays or rent concessions. If that happens, then think about the policy intent of the resurgent support payment. Ethically, it's there to support the payment of fixed costs so that the business isn't going to go under because it can't meet its fixed costs. If your fixed costs is gone, you know, ethically, don't apply for the resurgent support payment. But if I put my Gordon Gecko hat on and see that other people are taking it, Frankly, no one was punished for it last time. There was no accountability. There have been no prosecutions that I can see. There must be some people thinking, gee, everyone else got away with it. I better make sure I get my finger in that jar to get my fair share, otherwise I'm going to miss out. Yeah, I think, Bernard, you're right. People are, every, everyone's different. So some people will, that will be their thought process. I would hope that most people will, will as I say, apply this ethical lens. And I think this year the, the ante has been upped, so to speak. So the, um, the government ministers and officials have made it very clear, um, the documentation makes it clear that you have to complete, that you are open to review. There will be samples of applicants who will be reviewed. Everyone will be expected to have evidence to support, to corroborate their applications. And then, as I said before, if you don't meet the, if it turns out that your predictions don't eventuate, and that's a good thing, let's be honest, then you will have to repay. So, Because we hear a lot overseas and here from many big companies about how there has to be a change in the way that capitalism operates, that it has to be more inclusive and understand the, the widening of inequality that's happened over the last decade or two, particularly in the Western developed uh, countries. And we hear that in New Zealand too. There's Aotearoa Circle, there's a bunch of people um, who you know are asking to be taxed more. <laughs> but I, I wonder how much of this is... Uh, performative, how much of it is um, virtue signalling from business as opposed to from activists, virtue signalling, and at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is how much money is in the account and how much are the assets worth. And after the last year, it's fairly shocking. Yeah, look, there there may be um, some some of that, absolutely. Um, look, I think from I can speak for my profession so chartered accountants, like all professions, subject to a code of ethics, required to um, act in a professional manner, um, also committed to act in the public good. That's part of our code of ethics. And one of, um, one of the things we as an organisation have been pushing uh, for a number of years is the, you know, is the need for a focus on prosperity for all and shared prosperity. But there, there's a spectrum of behaviour in, in every, every area of life, Bernard, and um, 
as much as I would encourage every uh, director and uh, manager, CEO, to apply an ethical lens, you know, we will see different behaviours. Sure. How do you think um, auditors and um, accountants can build disciplines into their systems, particularly around um, the whole ESG and triple bottom line idea, to start to you know, be able to have some accountability around issues like this? Because Gordon Gecko can pretty easily just point to the bottom line and say, okay, um, shareholder equity up, uh, uh, that's all I need to know. When actually, if you look at the long-term liabilities of, for example, a, a company losing access to public assets or being prosecuted or losing its reputation with its consumers or its workers, let alone its investors, I do wonder whether those disciplines, those types of accounting have been introduced yet, which would apply some common set of facts that everyone can be held accountable by. Yeah, so ESG, so environmental social governance, you know, that is a, is a real, it's a developing area and it's a, a real area of focus for the accounting profession globally um, because it's an area where accountants, assurance providers, auditors can add value. Um, their integrated reporting is, is becoming much more of a thing and that um, is, is obviously about those ESG outcomes. I mean, a good example recently would be, you know, climate-related uh, disclosures. So we've got, a, you know, a, a, a bill in the House which um, effectively puts obligations on a certain number of larger entities to disclose their climate-related risks. You know, that's a fantastic development. It's, it's, it's not the first in the world, but it's certainly in, in the world-leading category that we're moving down that, that track. There are some challenges with that. There, you know, we've got to be able to measure and assure um, climate-related disclosures, and so that's that's that the, you know, but it's a great opportunity for our profession to be uh, involved in that. You know, the, the broader stakeholder group is becoming more and more interested in non-financial risks, um, and and perhaps less interested in historic reporting. You know, the the um, financial reporting provides good value, but but people are uh, are interested in, in all those broader uh, measures as well, and accountants and assurance providers have a big role to play in that because they are the experts in recording, measuring and assuring those those outcomes. And a huge role for um, advising those um, scorekeepers and officials, the people who tot up the final score and, and hand out the red cards and yellow cards. Peter Vile, the uh, Head of Country for Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand, thank you so much for uh, taking the, the time out and giving us some insight into how businesses are thinking about this. Thank you very much, Peter Vile. My pleasure. And that was Peter Vile. We'll see whether businesses treat the wage subsidies different this time around. I'd like to thank Peter Vile from Chartered Accountants, Daniel Webster there as well uh, for organising this interview, Professor Jilnaut Wong from Auckland University. He's actually retired, so it was great to get him on board. And, of course, Grant Robertson for announcing within a few hours that wage subsidy scheme. I'll have a think about whether I apply for it. That was When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey on the Spinoff Podcast Network in a podcast brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. And remember, it's a weekly podcast, so what you need to do is subscribe and it will turn up on your device like magic. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network. 
together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.